electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast Markets, finishing August on a four-day losing streak. The S&P down over 8% from August highs. The Dow around, down around 7.5%. The Nasdaq nearly 10%. Do investors need to get ready for a long September? Plus, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it anyway. Thanks for the memories. Mm. Bed Bath & Beyond cratering down more than 20% as a retailer announces store closures, layoffs, and a product overhaul is now is it now game over for this Reddit rebellion stock and later a victory lap for a bold call on Apple, potential tax troubles for Bitcoin, and we will strike up a conversation with the CEO of Bolero. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site. On the desk tonight, Steve Grasso, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, and Jeff Mills, and we start off with another rough month for markets. The S&P closing out August with its fourth straight day of losses. It ended the month down more than 4%. The Dow and Nasdaq also negative for the month. Only four Dow stocks managed to eke out gains in August. And take a look at this. The yield in the two-year Treasury briefly rose over 3.5% for the first time since November 2007, nearly 15 years ago. It was only a year ago that the rate was, get this, 013 that's a move of over 330 basis points in just 12 months. Meantime, the 10-year yield has climbed from about 1.2% to 3.198% now. So what are these bond moves telling us about what to expect from the broader markets this fall? Guy, what do you say? Hi, Melms. Boy, I tell you what, if you had pronounced that intro incorrectly, it would be like a Benny Hill skit. I know Tim knows what I'm talking about. I'll let you alone on that one. But what do they say? It says... Inflation is a problem, and the market's finally figuring that out. And quickly, I know we mentioned Robert Frost last week while you were absent, but I'll mention Maya Angelou today. When a person tells you who they are or shows you who they are, believe them the first time. And that's the Fed. They've been trying to tell us for months now they're going to remain hawkish. Inflation's a problem. Equities are probably going to go lower. Collateral damage. Until recently, the market didn't believe them. The market is beginning to believe them now. I, I don't want to be cavalier about this, but I, but I think everyone on this desk probably felt that the rally was overextended. Mm -hmm. Probably that we should back up a little bit in the overall markets. Maybe we get a little reprieve out of CPI. If we get the reprieve out of CPI, then maybe you can rally. But the problem is everyone now is at the other side of the boat. So I think we're going to have a week September, a week October, and then rally from November after the election into year-end. Markets love gridlock. Now, if there's a regime change in Congress, you have the ability to have the market rally. If there's not, then I think we continue the slide into year-end. Hmm. Um, obviously, September is a big month, Tim. Uh, we have not only the Fed, but we also have the ECB, which is another interesting dynamic. Uh, European recession fears potentially, you know, importing some of that slower growth here to the United States. So, you know, where do you stand on, on what these bond moves are telling us? 
Well, I, I think European bond yields, if you look at the bond yields, they've actually more than doubled in the last month in August alone. Uh, you've gone from you know, 70 bips or so on the 10-year bond to you know, close to 160. They had inflation numbers out today. Their CPI uh, has now moved ahead of the U.S. Uh, I don't know if that ignominious title is something anybody wants, but the view is that the European inflation continues to, to hold here. And like us, uh, if you look at their core X food and energy, it was up to 4.3 percent and shows the same labor dynamics. So um, I, I, back to the stock market and, and really what we should be doing with higher rates is we should mark, be marking down at least uh, what multiple we should be paying for stocks. That, you know, remember when Tina was out there and there was no alternative and this is why you own stocks, the, the Fed was intentionally pushing investors out the risk curve. Uh, and, and now they're obviously doing exactly the opposite of that. But just back to you know an Apple uh, trading about 10 turns, uh, maybe eight turns, eight to 10 turns past its 10-year uh, forward PE multiple of about 16 at around 25, 26, 24, wherever you are here on Apple. Microsoft probably five turns. So it comes down to valuations, I think, and it comes back to a case where uh, I, I think the the Fed rhetoric tells you, yes, I think you're going to have to evaluate stocks in an environment where rates are higher for longer. Meanwhile, we haven't even heard from uh, the demand side of a lot of the companies coming out of second quarter earnings. Remember, second quarter, uh, companies beat about 80% of the time on top line and about 65% on bottom line. And that was a pretty good quarter. Yeah, um, and, and we're already getting some cracks, so to speak. I mean, we heard from Hewlett Packard last night and we heard from Seagate this morning. And, and granted, this is sort of the hardware part, but they talked about enterprise spending and their business customers being cautious. And the fact that Seagate took down its guidance for this for this current quarter about, what, 40 days after they reported earnings and gave guidance suggests, Jeff, that things are still rapidly changing. And then you layer on top what Cleveland Fed President Loretta Messer said, that the probability of recession is higher now in the next year, two years or so. Um, I don't know. What do you make of all this? Because that seems to be what the 10-year yield is telegraphing to us right now. Yeah, I think that's right, Mel. And we've been talking about this transition in the market from fears of inflation and higher interest rates to ultimately sort of a proper bear market, right, that's ultimately EPS driven. And I think, you know, some of those reports that you're mentioning are forecasting uh, that potential deceleration in earnings growth, which I think is a problem. And, and it's particularly a problem because of this interest rate discussion that we're having, right? I think if you believe the Fed, and we've certainly had a, a parade of Fed officials come out and really pound the table on what's going to happen, uh, PEs are not going to expand, to Tim's point. So you have leading economic indicators, which are highly correlated with earnings revisions, all pointing lower. Everything that we look at says leading economic indicators are going to continue lower, so therefore so are earnings. And I think we have this chart ready, but look at the correlation between the two-year Treasury, which you mentioned, and PE ratios. Now, in the chart, the two-year is inverted, so that move lower means rates have gone higher. And like you said, it's at the highest point since, since 2007. So Guy said, you know, the market hasn't really believed the Fed. Uh, certainly true with the equity markets, not necessarily true for the bond markets, is that two years continued to press higher. Uh, and back in 2007, the PE was 14 times. Now you're talking about a PE of 17 times and CPI is over 8%. So um, if you see that gap close, which I think it will, and you see some pressure on EPS, I think that's the, the next difficulty for the market here. Yeah. Um, Grasso, we've called you Mr. Recession for quite some time. And yet you are the one who's forecasting a rally. Oh, I, it's a tactical rally. It's going so to year but end. This, but, the ba but the backdrop is still a recession. Slow, slower growth, margins okay. uh, you know, decreasing. Definitely a recession. It just depends on how deep 
the recession is going to be. We've heard garden variety recession, shallow recession. Any recession is bad, mm-hmm. right? So we'll, we'll see what happens. But yes, I'm still in the recession camp. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting, Tim, is that, you know, we've been talking about what the Fed is going to do, what the Fed is going to do, how much they're going to hike, when they're going to hike. We haven't even talked about QT which really ramps, starts to ramp this week, and, and the unknown impact that will have um, on, on rates and the environment. It, it, well, and, and, and on risk assets, because again, the Fed was after buying stuff and we were critical of them uh, that didn't need to be bought, and, and we're adding to some frothiness. But I, I think QT is, should be feared, but I think the next six to 12 months of QT, it will be eased in. I, I don't think this is where you're gonna feel the pain from QT. I, I think um, I, I would point to, again, Europe, where if we think that it's just contained on our shores and, and that some of the global dynamics uh, are not going to come back because apparently globalization is dead, and I think it is, um, I think you're wrong. And, and I think both inflation and I think the European growth cycle uh, really is in a very different place. But back to positioning for markets going into September, because it is a storied month. I mean, we know all about September. And, and if you look at the NASDAQ, I, I think it's its only down month. Uh, and now on average, it's a about down six tenths of a percent on the month. Uh, but look at the last two years, it was down 5.7% in 21 and 20. Uh, and obviously we've had some very dark Septembers. Positioning is, is almost there for that. If you look at uh, net short positions and short positions in the triple Qs, uh, I think they peaked somewhere in the third week of, of, of August, so just about last week, just before Jackson Hole, and, and are getting back near there. And I talk about S&P net shorts, and I talk about cash levels being high. This is part of where I think uh, market participants are playing a little bit of this ebb and flow. And this is fast money, by the way. I mean, you've had eight moves of plus or minus 9% in the S&P this year, um, mm-hmm. at least trough to peak or peak to trough. And I think that's where the market is trading right now. And yet, Guy, and I know you're going to go to this next, and yet, Guy, the VIX has remained relatively muted despite those moves. I'm in your head, right? Look at you. I mean, I mean I'm looking around. You got a camera or something in here? Because I was just Googling <laughs> the VIX, which closed right actually in front of you, the camera lower guy. on the day. Yeah. And it's interesting. You know, it's amazing. I think you bring up a great point because I was going to mention that the VIX lower today is interesting. But I'll throw this out there just to ponder. You know, typically when the VIX explodes to the upside, it's on events that nobody saw coming. And obviously everybody scampers to buy protection and that's why you see these spikes in the VIX. This at least, if nothing else, the Fed told us what they were gonna do back in November. So I think a lot of people have positioned for it vis-a-vis options and the VIX, which is why you probably haven't seen that move to the upside. So I'm not underestimating your point, but I think it's mitigated to some degree Mm -hmm. because I think people have been prepared for what they think is coming. So great point by you, Mel cogent answer by me in response right in fact they're in cash they're not hedging so the so the vix is is muted our next guest suggests the market is underestimating odds of a fed pivot nancy davis is the chief investment officer at quadratic capital management she runs the firm's interest rate volatility and inflation hedge etf nancy welcome to the show welcome back to studio first time since 2019 um we we had a chance to chat in the green room so it's not necessarily a fed pivot but sort of the notion that that maybe the fed could ease off of full hawk a little (laughs) earlier than what we think? (laughs) No, exactly, Melissa. The Fed has been so um, 
hawkish with their forward guidance, it's already moved the rate hike expectations. So right now, with only four months left in 22, we have 131 basis points of hikes priced in. So said another way, the Fed has to hike 131 basis points just to meet expectations. So if they hike, say, 75 or 50 and then another 25, that would actually be perceived as less than what's priced in right now. So what do you make of the extreme, um, maybe extreme is too extreme of a word, but the elevated interest rate volatility that we, we were just talking about the VIX being so muted, but yet interest rate volatility has been high. And I'm wondering, you know, in past periods, have you seen this? What does this sort of portend? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. because we have quantitative tightening. You know, just starting tomorrow, we'll be into September already, and the Fed is going to be doubling their caps and reducing their balance sheets. So quantitative easing was the Fed buying um, on the SOMA holdings and increasing, buying treasuries, buying tips, buying mortgages. Now they're going to be reducing that, and with the caps doubling, I think it's logical that interest rate ball is on the uptick right now. Hey, Nancy, it's Jeff Mills. Uh, just two real quick questions. So I, I was asking this yesterday to our research team and, you know, pondering how many hikes, where do we end? You know, how much does it matter at that point if we're recession bound already? You know, has what the Fed already done? You know, is the writing on the wall? Are earnings already going to come down? And does that then seal the market's fate here? And then, you know, in the same breath, where do you want to go in the market in that environment? Well, the rates market is definitely pricing in this recession, slow growth. You can see that with the massively inverted yield curve. Um, the level of five-year break-evens is just barely above the 2% target. So even though the Fed might have retired that dirty word transitory, the rates market has not. So the rates market is definitely pricing in a disinflationary, slowing inflation growth. Um, actually, low growth, maybe even recession is priced in. Um, but the equity markets and credit markets are still, you know, even though we've had a little bit of a pullback right now, they're still doing pretty well. So I think the question is, which market is going to be right? Um, because we really have two different stories going on, whether you're looking at corporate America versus the government bond markets. Nancy, I saw you in the halftime report in the middle of June when everybody was overwhelmingly bearish, think the S&P was 36.50 or so. You actually thought you could see a move to 4,200. That happened uh, a lot quicker probably than people realize. What are you, I'm not looking to play stock market, but you know, what do equities look like for you right now with this rate environment? You know, I think the Fed has done a lot of forward guidance, and I think if they don't, say they hike 50 in September, I think that it will be risk on, you know, because the market is really priced for that 131 basis points through the end of the year. So there is a lot of room to not meet those expectations. So we'll see. But uh, I, I'm with you, Guy. I think, uh, I think people are very bearish in the middle of June, and there could be a lot of room. You know, I think so much of the consensus is for a recession, and positioning is that way. Right. Nancy, great to see you. Thank you so much for coming by. Thanks for Nancy having me. Nancy Davis of Quadratic. It is amazing to think that we have become inured to massive rate hikes and that 50 basis points would actually be bullish for the market, Steve, because it's not 75. <laughs> I know, and the problem is, you brought it up to Nancy, that if we're looking at quantitative tightening, that's the equivalent of 25 basis points right there. So even if you get 50, you get 75. You get 75, you get 100. So quick math there. So if you see that, if you see the tightening, we have no idea what the effect is going to be. So at this point, it's a wait and see approach. You have to be data dependent, and we'll see where the markets fall at the end of the year. Tim? 
Well, you know, the, the bond market may be more overpriced than the equity market. That's the problem right now for a lot of mm. people, again, at least in terms of real rates. And this is what we talk about all the time. Um, I, I do think that the Fed is going to have to hold course. And I think the labor market, we've got a payroll number on Friday. Um, and, and if the equities want a chance to rally a little bit, if we actually see some job deterioration, which, I, you know, the ADP numbers out today and we've, we've pointed, you know, we all know the ADP and the government's numbers are not necessarily in sync. ADP's changing actually some of their uh, calculation methods. But um, the bottom line is that the job market is where the Fed uh, needs to be focused. And if this is a very strong number, it's going to push rates up even higher. I, I do think rates mm -hmm. uh, have to stay higher. I do think bond prices probably need to come down. All of this leads to credit issues that we even happen to start to talk about. But again, I think we have ranges to trade in. And I think positioning um, is well prepared for a long December. Coming up, several stocks seeing even bigger losses in the broad market in recent weeks. But could any of these beaten down names be worth a buy? An end of summer traded or faded is just minutes away. But first, shares of Bed Bath cratering after announcing a major restructuring plan. Why the market isn't buying what they're selling, literally, when Fast Money returns. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond taking a bath today, finishing down over 21%. Basically, every headline for them today seemed to be bad, from a filing with the SEC to sell 12 million more shares uh, to the restructuring plan that called for 150 stores to close, cutting 20% of corporate supply chain staff and getting half a billion in additional financing at very, very high prices. Is this the beginning of the end for this meme stock? And, and I guess I'll spin it this way, uh, Tim. Maybe it wasn't bad enough. Maybe what they offered in restructuring wasn't deep enough and wasn't um, game-changing enough for people to take this seriously in terms of a turnaround. I don't think so. And, and again, look, for a company that, that probably sells a lot of stuff nobody needs, um, sorry, guy. 
Um, but I think you got a, a case here where they some of the slash uh, of, of jobs and stores equals about 250 million in the current fiscal quarter. They just burned through 325 million in the last quarter. Um, they raised equity at a absurdly cheap valuation or expensive, depending how you put it as a as a shareholder. And and if you look back on the chart of the stock, it was at these levels three years ago on this day before we even knew about COVID. And, and, and so this was a distressed story back then. And so to me, uh, I, there's no silver bullets. There's no way they're going to get to free cash flow anytime soon. And I, I think it's great that they're actually going down this road. I, I think the price for equity shareholders could be even greater than it is today. Yeah. Um, Guy, I know you buy your fair share of potpourri, scented candles um, in down duvets at Bed Bath & Beyond. Still not enough. Um, they, they are switching back. Under a former CEO, Mark Tritton, they tried to make a, a switch to private label. He came from Target where that was tremendously successful. But now they're going to go back to these national you know, favorite brands. Um, that's not an easy thing to do to decide we're going to do that <laughs> and get that back on the shelf in the midst of, of when there are supply chain issues out there still. Yeah, there's only so much as seen on TV stuff you can sell <laughs> in the, you know, in the aisles. Now, and listen, last night you had Coco Beware on, and he talked about it, and then he came to me and said, what do you think? I said, it's going lower, Bob, and here we are at 10 bucks. And listen, last I looked, there are 50 states in the country, I think, and I think they're closing 150 stores, which suggests three stores of states are going to, there are three stores too many in each state. I mean, they got a lot of work to do, so... This was, and we've talked about it, it was a failing company before anybody ever came up with the term meme stock, and it's a failing company now, and I think the stock continues to go lower from here. All right. We've got a market flash on NVIDIA. Um, shares are sharply lower after hours. Let's get to Steve Kovac with the details on what is causing this move. Steve. Yeah, Mel, so NVIDIA shares are falling about 3% right now. This is following a SEC filing from the company. It's dated the 26th, which is two days after uh, they reported earnings, basically revising their guidance again uh, lower by $400 million after a, what they're saying is a new licensing requirement by the United States that's going to prevent them from selling some products to China. So a $400 million lowering of their guidance for the quarter, and that's sending shares down, Mel. Do you, I mean, Steve, is this new requirement, is this something that they have to work through or does this permanently prevent them from selling these specific products to China? It's the specific product, sorry, but they, uh, the filing does not answer that question, so we're still digging through that to find out. But right now, it's, it's the bottom line. What we do need to know is this $400 million lowering of the guidance mill. Okay. Um, thanks for that, Steve. We'll uh, continue, continue to dig through this down 4.7% um, right now. Steve Grasso, what do you make of this? So th this one, you know how I felt on the semiconductors. I've, I've been negative on the semiconductors. This seems like there's one bad headline after another bad headline. I go back to February 2020. NVIDIA was traded at $75. Now we have a raising rate environment. They have less gaming revenue now. They have less mining revenue now. So I don't know why they should be in an uptrend. I would still say sell the name. I used to love it, but right now the environment's not right for it. Yeah, down almost 5% right now. Just scanning the semiconductors, Jeff, it's not clear how this will impact the others. We do see move lower in shares of AMD down 2.3%. There's a lot we don't know about the details of this, um, but still, what do you make of the news? Yeah, I mean, you'll get a knee-jerk reaction, but, you know, look at the move in AMD. It's probably about half of what you're seeing in NVIDIA, and I think a lot of that just has to do with the premium valuation you're seeing in NVIDIA right now. I think NVIDIA is probably 15, maybe 18 P turns <clears throat> higher than AMD right now, and projected EPS growth is obviously different, but it's not different enough to justify 
that sort of premium in my mind. So that's why I think you're seeing the move. You know, you're about to break through year-to-date lows anyway, still in a clear downtrend. So I'd be watching that 150-ish level. You know, it was resistance, then support. So I'd be concerned that it breaks through that level and then you see more downside. All right. There's a lot more to uh, come on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. The dog days of summer are almost over. But some names are still feeling the heat. So which beaten down stocks are due for a turnaround? Traded or faded is up next. Plus, if you don't stretch, you might pull something. And options traders are betting on just that for Lululemon. How they're playing the name and hoping to find Nirvana. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Markets have pulled back sharply from their August highs, but a few stocks have fared even worse than the broader indices. Caesars, Dollar Tree, and Zoom falling 16 to almost 30 percent since then. But do these pullbacks present an opportunity to get in? What better way to find out than a little game of... Trade it or fade it! That's right, America's favorite show. Game. (laughs) Show. Trade it or fade it. Uh, let's kick it off with Caesars. See, Grasso, trade it or fade it. Uh, this is going to be a fade for me, but I, I could make a tactical trade on this if I had to. So I'm pl- I am what? playing. I am playing both sides of this. This the stock has sold off. It normally would bounce. I do favor U.S. focused companies versus uh, Chinese focused companies when you're talking about casinos. But this one for me is going to be a fade. So long term, you would trade it, but short term. Uh, no, no, no. Short term, short term, I would trade it. Longer term, I'd fade it. Okay, sense? it's it, this is this is not the way the game is played, Tim. Very confusing. What do you say? I, I he just well, I, I'm going to trade it straight up. There's no 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 both ways on this. To me, it's actually a very undemanding valuation at, at you know roughly. 10 times uh, EBITDA on 23. I, I think you've priced in at least a mild recession into this name, free cash flow. And, and I do believe that they've actually been uh, selective in terms of where they've been pouring cash into that online sports betting. I think they've shown some discipline. All right, let's move on to Zoom. Tim, trade it or fade it? I'm going to trade this one, too. I, and this is a little scary to be out there on this one. I, I, I realize it sits right in the middle of the high-tech multiple stock, but they actually make money. Uh, and at 25 times next year, we just got numbers. Uh, there wasn't a lot of growth there, but there is free cash flow. Uh, I do think this is a business that continues. And, and I think the valuation at this point with free cash flow is something you can own. Guy? Fade that sucker, Mel. I'll play this game right because it is my favorite uh, game show, as you know. And Tim is right. Listen. You can make a compelling case for valuation. The problem is, I think, in this environment, valuations are going to continue to ratchet lower. The stock is within a whisper of a 52-week low, and I think it trades down to that pre-COVID level of about 70 bucks or thereabout. All right. And let's get to Dollar Tree. Jeff, trade it or fade it? 
I'm glad to see Grasso breaking the rules. I feel like I usually get in trouble for that. So I'm just going to simply trade this one. I think the move lower is actually an opportunity. And you're seeing this trend, right, in higher income consumers turning to dollar stores. Typically, the demo is less than $40,000 a year in income. Right now, you're seeing more in that $75,000 to $100 in income. Also, it's a younger demo. So I'm wondering if they're actually creating customers for the long term. And I also wonder whether you'll start to see even higher income demographics start to turn to dollar stores. We all know the credit card debt story, biggest year over year increase in 20 years. You know, you might say, well, inflation's coming down, so maybe you'll get a reprieve. But I think that's all at the expense of, of growth and eventually the labor market. And these are businesses that typically fare better in economic slowdowns. I don't think it's different this time, so trade it. Steve, I'll give you a second chance. Oh, trade it or fade it. I feel terrible to do this to you. It's going to be a fade for me. Inflationary <laughs> pressures, and there's not a lot of room to play in, in, in the stock that's named Dollar Tree. You, you feel it coming? Yes, but. You feel it coming. But where it's at in the charts right now, it could be a quick little pop, but ultimately it's a fade for me. <laughs> Steve is officially banned from the next round of Trader uh, Fanning. He will sit out the next time I we play this game. Myself. I officially bench Steve Grasso. We've got one more name here, though, with a little twist. Apple. Now, remember, two weeks ago, the chartmaster Carter Worth laid out a big fade on the stock. My thinking is, this technician, that it's just too steep, uncorrected, almost unnatural. From the absolute low of June, June 16th, Apple's up 35%. And the angle of the line is becoming increasingly unnatural. No givebacks, no, not even a, a down two-day sequence. And so not only do we have that sort of unnatural uh, line, we are up against a downtrend line. Well, that was a good call. The tech titan dropping more than 9% since then. So we have to bring Carter Worth back. Carter, we're going to ask you to play the game from here. Trading or fading Apple at this point? Yeah, it's, uh, can I, I, I'm going to break the rules here. I, uh, I think you do nothing, so I know that that's not helpful. Meaning after 10% sell-off, really press the short? That seems a bit aggressive, but just because it sold off 10%, buy it? Really? Why? Meaning we've had a 10-day sell-off that's 10.8%, and yet it's just in line with the Qs. The Qs are down that much, 10.8. The Russell's down 9.2. So I think there are these moments that we try to be actionable. We all do try to call the direction. Then some moments where, I don't know, it's pretty close to 50-50. I guess if one has profits in this short, I'd clear out and go on the sidelines. But if I were on the sidelines right now, I don't think I'd get on this on board, long or short. Leave it alone. Does this mean that the leave it alone option also stands for the broader markets? Well, no, I think the broader markets in general, and then you could say there's so much autocorrelation with Apple at 7.3% that the answer is the same for Apple, that if I'm going to say the general markets are going lower, then Carter, aren't you saying that the Apple's going lower? If I have to be directional, I would rather be underweight or short Apple, and that's the same for the market. Okay. See, I feel like that's okay if Carter breaks through because oh. the message was clear from him, and that oh. was do nothing. It wasn't do this first and then do that. Um, but, Jeff Mills, where would you stand on Apple here at this point? Tim mentioned it earlier. I think almost at 20, 25 times forward, it's really never been that expensive in the 10 years prior to COVID. And 
for me, it all comes down to earnings expectations. Again, I mean, even if you don't see a fall in earnings expectations, you're still talking about a 23 times multiple in the out years. And you, know, you mentioned some of the guide downs, Mel Seagate, HP in the hardware. I know it's not exactly the same, but at the same time, iPhone still has over 50% of its revenues tied to uh, Apple has 50% of its revenues tied to iPhone. So, you know, I think the weakness in consumer will ultimately permeate into Apple's earnings and then that will put pressure on the stock, uh, not to mention the fact that the multiple is where it is right now. Uh, Carter, I understand that you have another chart that you've brought along for us, CRM. Uh, well, I thought we'd talk about Salesforce. I got three of them, actually. Oh, okay. But uh, let's look. Here we go. They're all the same time frame, so it's just different lines, different ways to draw the line. So we know that Salesforce bounced with the market, but the problem is it's only 1% above its 52-week low. It would take the S&P an 8% drop to get to its 52-week low. The NASDAQ a 10% drop. We're hovering ominously right at prior lows. Uh, another way to draw the line, second iteration. Uh, you can see it here on your screen. Or third iteration. It's all the same chart, but we are breaking, we're hovering ominously. So relative strength is poor, price volume is bearish, correlation, and I think you're gonna take out the lows. Nvidia's in the same boat, Adobe, and that's kind of the problem with the market, because the big names in tech, among other things, are not acting well. Guy, if you are a believer that there is some caution amongst uh, corporate America, amongst enterprise in terms of spending, then that makes sense that Salesforce would break. That's been, yeah, and that's been Karen Feinerman's theme. If I know you know this. I mean, that's how she's sort of been hedging some of her long positions vis-a-vis -vis exactly that. And I'm with Carter on this one. I mean, if you recall when he put that Apple call out, I was on the phone uh, doing hedging strategies, which was <laughs> one of my best gags ever of all time. And he was spot on in his timing. And he's gonna be right on this one. By definition, I think in this environment, High multiple stocks valuations have to come down regardless of what you think of the companies. They're great companies. They're just too expensive in this environment. Carter, thanks. Good to see you. Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. Coming up, options traders giving Lulu a try on ahead of earnings tomorrow, but could shares need a warm up before heading higher? How markets are playing this name next. Plus, shares of MicroStrategy pulling back late in today's session after accusations of tax fraud against its founder, one of the early poster children of the crypto world. The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of MicroStrategy sinking today following tax fraud allegations against the company's co-founder and executive chairman, Michael Saylor. The lawsuit filed today in the District of Columbia accuses Saylor of evading $25 million in taxes. It also names MicroStrategy as a defendant. CNBC's Eamon Javers has been following this one today. Eamon, what's the latest? Yeah, that's right, Melissa. It's both the man and the company. The attorney general of the District of Columbia says he is suing billionaire MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor for non-payment of taxes, alleging that billionaire tech executive has lived in the district for more than a decade, but has never paid any D.C. income taxes. He also says he is suing Saylor's company, which is located just across the river in suburban Virginia, for, quote, conspiring to help him evade taxes he legally owes on hundreds of millions of dollars he earned while living in D.C. The suit alleges that Saylor illegally avoided more than $25 million in taxes by pretending to be a resident of other jurisdictions, including Florida and Virginia, with, low, uh, with lower personal income taxes. Now, the filing states uh, these uh, uh, cites these Saylor social media posts showing his waterfront building and his yacht on the Potomac as evidence that he actually lives in D.C. These from 2012, as you see on the screen there. They also cited a whistleblower's 
complaint that alleges Saylor openly bragged to friends and acquaintances about evading D.C. taxes and encouraged others to follow his example. In all, they say, Saylor avoided paying more than $25 million in income taxes. We've reached out to MicroStrategy for its comments on this allegation. No response from them yet. No response from Saylor yet. Back over to you, Melissa. Um, Eamon, would you know if, if, if he is found guilty of, of tax evasion, if that would um, disqualify him from being an officer at a public company? That's a really interesting legal question. I don't know off the top of my head. Now, remember, they moved him out of the CEO role, right? Mm -hmm. So he has a different role at the company. Uh, I don't know if that would, it would play into it, but I'd need to check the law books before I answered that question definitively, Melissa. Okay, Eamon, thanks. Eamon Javers for the latest on that. That was definitely a stab in the dark, so I apologize to Eamon for that. But I think that would be a concern um, potentially uh, for investors since he has been sort of the evangelist of the Bitcoin strategy, which really has been a huge part of the micro-strategy valuation for so long, Tim. Without question. And out there and not only unabashed about it, but but really um, aggressive in it. And and so uh, certainly a second quarter markdown, I think of, you know, nine hundred and twenty million dollars or so uh, on a Bitcoin position that that obviously we know what's happened to the price of Bitcoin. Um, I think most people that are playing in the crypto space, but specifically around Bitcoin, um, feel pretty comfortable with some of the volatility in the space. And I think that's very clear what I think MicroStrategy feels. You know, and in terms of the executive change that, that went on, I, I think you know, this was something that, that uh, I think he moved from the CEO seat to the executive, executive mm -hmm. chair seat uh, about a month ago. And and market largely expected that. And, and so, um, look, this, this is news that I think obviously shareholders are, are, are listening to. Um, but right now, I think the issues with the stock are more around just balance sheet and how much leverage to Bitcoin. Yeah, Guy? Well, I mean, I can speak intelligently about a lot of things. You know, Michael Saylor's situation with Washington, D.C. and the IRS is not one of them. But I will say, you know, I didn't realize having a boat in a river that meant you had to pay taxes. To, I mean, if that's true, George Move Washington would have a problem being that he, <laughs> he crossed. But I'll say this, really, when it comes down to micro strategies, if you think Bitcoin is bottoming here, this stock is worth a play on the long side. If you think the Fed is going to remain hawkish and Bitcoin goes lower, you have to go elsewhere, I think, Melms. All right, coming up. The return to work may also mean the return to after work get togethers, and one bowling company could be a big beneficiary from that. So, is it time to roll this name into your portfolio? We will be joined by Bolero's Kingpin next. More fast money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Bolero rolling higher once again today. J.P. Morgan out with a bullish note on the company, saying shares could surge as demand for events increases in a post-pandemic world. Let's bring in Tim Shannon, the founder, chairman and CEO of Bolero. Great to have you with us, Tom. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Um, we've got some bowling fans on the panel, and the analyst note yesterday um, called it the magic of bowling. And he's not just talking about the experience of bowling itself as a pastime, um, but basically, you know, some of the interesting um, business aspects of bowling, such as fixed costs um, that really benefit the industry. So can you sort of walk through that for us? Sure. So the beauty of our business model is that about uh, two thirds of our revenue, which is bowling, right? The activity of bowling, shoe rental and arcade has little to no variable cost. So correspondingly, we have really high margins. Our center level EBITDA margin, our, our profit margin before rent, is about 50%. The industry average is 20%. So 
So we're able to get from 20 to 40% just from a better operating model. We're very data-driven. We have a tremendous amount of, uh, of data that we share across and optimize the business based on. So you, know, you have a very high margin business uh, that results in very high returns on investment. We've deployed hundreds of millions of dollars in capital since we acquired AMF back in 2013 at about an average 40% return on investment for new builds and center conversions. Um, and it's also a not very labor dependent model. It's pretty self-serve. So when you come to go bowling, we turn on a lane, we give you shoes and you go and bowl for an hour or two hours and it, it, you don't really need much labor to make it work. You know, and if we have a server that comes to the lanes, that's great. If not, you can go to the bar. The service expectations in a bowling alley are relatively modest. So we're able to charge a good price for what we do with mm -hmm. a very low cost structure. I see you bought three properties in Wichita, Kansas. I've been to Wichita, it's beautiful by the way. But my point I guess is, there's so much growth opportunity here. Can you speak to that? Because one would think, a bit saturated in Wichita, but quite frankly, there seems to be a lot of opportunities across the country in this. Absolutely right. So there are about 4,000 bowling centers in the US. We're the biggest <laughs> bowling player in the world by about 8X number two, but we only have about 8% market share. So 310, 320 locations. We're acquiring all across the country. We're building in many markets. We built a number of centers recently, um, two in Northern Virginia, one in Tyson's Corner uh, in, uh, and in, over in Crystal City uh, in Florida. We're building a number of new centers in California. So we have four vectors of growth. We acquire, we build new, we renovate existing centers that we own in our portfolio mm -hmm. that haven't been renovated yet. And then we have organic growth. So in the four years leading up to COVID, our same store sales growth was almost 5%, which was dramatically better than any of other location-based entertainment uh, competitors. Tom, we've got so many more questions, and, uh, including ones about gutter guards, the rise of gutter guards. Um, but we'll have to save it for another time. It's been really great speaking with you. Hey, great to see you too. Thank you. Tom Shannon. By the way, full disclosure, we've had a Fast Money holiday party at a bowling alley. It was tremendous fun, yeah. Tim. And, and I understand you, you just partook in bowling recently, the other day. I, I, I was bowling last weekend with my kids uh, and definitely needed the gutter guards. But uh, no, it's great fun. And if you think about the, the family experience there, but also <laughs> segment breakdowns, there I am with my kids. Um, they were better bowlers than I was. My daughter was for sure. Uh, but the bottom line here is that the, the ROI that he's talking about and his ability to grow that business and roll up uh, is very impressive. But more importantly, the margin in the business inherent is actually very impressive. I'm a buyer. Final trades up next. Final trade, Guy. Kroger, sister. Tim. By the way, I didn't wear the bowling shoes the other night. Constellation Brands. The Rebel. Jeff. <laughs> Dollar Tree, take advantage of this recent drop. Steve Grasso. Alibaba, I'm looking for a 10 to 20% upside here. I think it's ripe for a bounce. All right, thank you so much for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. I'll see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. for Squawk Box. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. 
That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.